Father, our hearts have already been lifted heavenward. It was beautiful spring Sabbath. What wondrous love is this? The maker of all things loves and wants me? How come? And why me? As we worship in the word now, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I marvel that Jesus survived until his death. I mean, there he is having supper with his closest followers on earth in an upper room, borrowed quarters. One of the 12 gets up and with hardly a goodbye, disappears into the night shadows that are gathering. And yet Jesus stays in that upper room, begins to share some of the most esoteric and profound truths that humanity has ever heard, let alone the 11 who are left. he's through, they all push away from the table, hurry down the flight of stairs to the now empty alleyway. They're going to their favorite hideaway. It's in the heart of a garden called the Olive Press or Gethsemane. But as they arrive at that garden, something's, something's going wrong with Jesus, and he's very transparent about it. He said, guys, I don't know what's happening to me. I am overwhelmed with sorrow, and I feel like I'm, I'm going to die now. He motions them, you, you, you guys pray here. You three pray there. As he stumbles alone into the very depths of the garden to cry out to his Abba Father. This is no getaway for him. And clearly, it's not death that he's fearing now. There's obviously the torture of a demon's whisper in his mind that is assuring him that if he proceeds down this path that he has chosen, he will never come back again. Sometime in the middle of the night, his own disciple betrayer shows up, lead man in a pack of temple guard and riffraff ruffians. And when he walks up and plants that kiss on Jesus' bearded cheek, all hell breaks loose. And guess what? All the disciples, every single one of them, flees. leaving Jesus alone to be roped and dragged by evil men. And, of course, there is the obligatory examination by the, the titular high priest, Annas. He's an old man. Nothing comes from that. 
They hurry him to Annas' son-in-law, who is the acting high priest, Caiaphas. He has a palace. Jesus is bound. The gag is loosed from his mouth. I'm telling you what, it's a kangaroo court from the beginning. No witnesses can agree, not even two of them. And the prisoner refuses to answer a single question. And finally, the wily Caiaphas, desperate for some action tonight, feigns, feigns shock as he grills the prisoner. Are you, and under oath, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And shoved into that corner, the prisoner has to speak. You say so. But I tell you, the day is coming when you will see the Son of Man riding upon the clouds of heaven, sitting beside glory. And then comes that dramatic, well-rehearsed act as he shrieks and rips his sacerdotal garments. What say you, jury? And they vote unanimously. Get this. They vote unanimously this verdict. He deserves death. It's the greatest lie in the history of the human race. He deserves death. And then for a second time, all hell breaks loose as the gathered rabble now are permitted access to the prisoner and with fang and fury and spittle and shrieks of curse. They descend and pummel the prisoner. I say at the beginning, I say it again, I marvel that Jesus survives until his death. And the Roman procurator is ticked to high heavens for the rude early morning awakening The interrogation by the governor seems so innocent and inquiring, but when the mob for hire begins to chant for the prisoner's crucifixion, every political instinct of the governor's mastery of survival kick in. Yes, he'll confess three times, I find no fault in him. Three confessions. They aren't confessions at all. They're covering his tail. I don't understand how Jesus could have survived one scourging, let alone two. But scholars believe he may have suffered scourging twice in those few hours. Stripped naked, the executioner, without a wooden handle and leather straps affixed to it, tied into each leather strap, bone and metal and rock, literally shredding the victim as he yanks back and the skin tears open. I marvel that Jesus survived until his death. Why would a God do that? For whom? You're kidding me. 
Pilate at last brings out the purple-robed prisoner for the last time. Now we see the morality tale that Pilate has become. We see that behind his facade of authority and power is a craven heart. He's already hanging by a thread with the imperial throne in Rome. He knows that if he doesn't play the last card right, he loses position and power and possibly his life. And nobody that morning will exchange places with this innocent prisoner. That's why it makes me so mad every single time I come to this line. I want you to open your Bible to John chapter 19. Find it. Nothing going on the screen. Find it in your device, your Bible. The crucifixion of Christ, the fourth gospel's version. John 19, drop down to verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And every time I come to that, I say in my soul, Pilate, come on, my man, you can stand up this time. Don't buckle now. Three times, Pilate has declared, I find no fault in him. Three times, listen to this, three times Roman jurisprudence, along with a Jewish court, attempt knowingly to send an innocent man to his death. Still happens today, by the way. The innocent railroaded through trial because every court needs a victim. Will Pilate yield to the brute political instincts of survival? And when Pilate heard this, verse 13, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate incredulously asks. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And so finally... The great disappointment for me. Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Isn't that amazing? Jesus had been standing at Gabbatha, where a guilty governor 
condemned to death an innocent man. And now Jesus is standing at Golgotha, where guilty sinners like you and me condemn an innocent Savior. Gabbatha, Golgotha. Any way you cut it, ladies and gentlemen, we are all guilty. Every single one of us. Verse 19, and Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And for once, Pilate has guts. And he answered, what I have written, I have written. What's the point? F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, put it this way. I'll put it on the screen for you right now. The crucified one is the true king. And I love this. The kingliest king of all. But keep reading. Because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. A phrase from second century Christianity, reigns from the tree, end quote. The kingliest king of all. So here's the question, guys. How much of all is all? Hmm? Craig Keener also a bright New Testament scholar, put his words on the screen for you. He's commenting on the inked three-language sign nailed to Jesus right above his head. And here's Keener. The three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, the three languages suggest the universality of Jesus' reign. On the cross, he draws all people to himself. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't he say that on Tuesday? This is Friday now. Didn't he say that on Tuesday? The waning hours, Tuesday afternoon. He stands in front of a little crowd and he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. And thus he signified what manner of death he would die. The gospel reads, All people, the kingliest king of all, Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. All people, my oh my. But then we shouldn't be surprised. We have been concentrating on this one sentence all winter long. The maker of all things. How's it go? The maker of all things loves and wants me. All people. The maker of all things, the kingliest king of all. He loves me and he wants me. He loves and wants all people. One of our viewers sent me an email just a few days ago, and this is good. So he uh, was listening to a YouTube piece. I went and listened to it afterwards. It was a great piece. He's listening to a YouTube piece by Lenny LeBlanc. You've heard of Lenny LeBlanc? The piece is, we all bow down. And, you know, Lenny wrote the words, and it's just Lenny sitting at the piano singing those words. 
And oh my, it's moving. In fact, I've got the words right here. I printed them off. This is beautiful. Princes and paupers, sons and daughters, kneel at the throne of grace. Losers and winners, saints and sinners, one day we'll see his face. And we all bow down. Kings will surrender their crowns and worship Jesus, for he is a love, unfailing love. He is the love of God. Now it goes on. Summer and winter, the mountains and rivers whisper our Savior's name. Awesome and holy, a friend to the lonely, forever his love will reign. He's the light of the world and Lord of the cross. And we all bow down. Kings will surrender their crowns. And worship Jesus, worship Jesus, worship Jesus, for he is love, unfailing love. He is the love of God. It's a beautiful song. I'd never heard it before. So why does this guy send me an email about that song? Because after he listens to the song, he goes to the comments section. You know how on YouTube you can respond to whatever is going on. And he reads the comments section, and he comes across a comment that has a typographical error in it, and he wants to tell me about it. Now, the commenter is, 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 is reacting to that beautiful song with a beautiful testimony. I heard this song and gave my life to Christ. Praise God. I heard this song and gave my life to Christ. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's beautiful. Only his left fourth finger missed the key and hit the next door neighbor key so that it ended up reading like this. Let me put it on the screen for you. I heard this song and gave my life to Christ. When I was still a dinner, Christ died for me. <laughs> and this bright viewer, because the viewers that watch New Perceptions are bright, this bright viewer sends me an email, and he responds to that. What was, it, what was the line again? Without Jesus? Well, you've got, you got to read it here. I'll, I'll just read it to you. So he writes to me, it is obviously a typo, as the D and the S are next to each other on the keyboard, but it is still so appropriate. The devil is walking around like a hungry, roaring lion, and without Jesus, we were indeed dinner. He got the gospel. That typographical error taught the gospel. I was not just a sinner. I was a dinner. I love it. Why? Because without Jesus, we were indeed dinner. Because we are all sinners. Victims and dinners for the roaring lion, Satan. And because the, the maker of all things loved and wanted us and loves and still wants us, he was willing to exchange his place and die for you and me. Not for a day, exchange places. Not for a lifetime, exchange places. But forever and ever, exchange places. You live forever. I die forever. That's the gospel. Jesus became the dinner for Satan so that you wouldn't have to be dinner for him. My, oh my. 
How did Jesus put it there in John's? Put it on the screen. John 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. How did Jesus say it to Nicodemus, that midnight rendezvous? Let's read these words out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. And the John who wrote the majestic fourth gospel also wrote a letter before the New Testament closed. It's at the very end of your Bible, before the apocalypse. We want to end with this verse. So go to John, 1 John, 1 John, a little tiny letter, 1 John chapter 4. And I want to draw your attention to verse 10. 1 John 4, 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the truth that the maker of all things who loves and wants me became an atoning sacrifice. That's code language in the Greek and English. For he exchanged places with you and me so that by dying forever, we might live forever. I don't understand that, but it's the gospel, and it happens to be the gospel truth. He exchanged places for you and me, willing to die forever. And what kind of specimens did he lay down his life for? Refresh my memory, Dwight. Well, how about Judas? Mm. How about Peter? Ooh. How about Caiaphas? The two thieves? Yep. You and me? Ooh. Jen Pollock, Michelle, in her wonderful book, Surprised by Paradox, describes us proud sinners this way. You got to get this. Proud sinners. And she borrows from the language of G.K. Chesterton, one of the great uh, 20th century English writers. All right? So we'll put the words on the screen. Christian humility, she writes, is both great pride as well as great prostration. On the one hand, we must recognize that we are the chief of creatures. Wow. Crowned with glory and honor, to quote the words of the psalmist. Unlike anything else in all creation, we alone, think of this, we alone bear the image of God. But on the other hand, we must acknowledge that we are not just the chief of creatures, we are also the chief of sinners. We would greedily vie for all that is God's. The consistent testimony of Scripture is how good humans are at screwing up. And that's the gospel truth. Now, let me speak plainly to you. The risk of focusing too intently and I hope we have it. On this single line, the maker of all things loves and wants me. The risk is a subtle subconscious downplaying of our innate sinfulness. Well, you know what? I'm not that bad. Oh, sure, I screw up now and then, but so does everybody else. And besides, the maker of all things loves and wants me. So what's not to like about that? That's a danger. Because it usually takes 
a moral meltdown of some sort or magnitude. Peter's denial, Judas's betrayal, and by the way, Judas, if he had, after the betrayal, gone to Jesus sincerely and had repented, he would have been received as back, back as fast as Peter was received back. But he didn't. He killed himself. David's moral crash and burn. Saul, who became Paul's slaughter of the innocents to, to choke off his guilty conscience over Stephen's death. It oftentimes, not always, but it oftentimes takes a moral meltdown of some sort to break us free from our delusional, I'm okay, you're okay, deception. That is a deception. We are not okay. I know the maker of all things loves and wants us, but that's to his credit, not you, not mine. We're not okay. We are sinners. And one day we will stand before the God of this universe who is the judge of all life forms, a God whose eye reads us as if we were naked and reads every truth about us that exists. You can try to blow that off. Well, that's not for me. Oh, it is, sir, for you. We are all sinners, and we are not okay. And we hang on to this desperate, solitary hope that the maker of all things who loves and wants us will have mercy on us and grant us the forgiveness we so desperately need. That's what we hold to. That's our only hope. Or we're dinner. And by the way, even though we don't sin here, huh? we don't sin here, but we sin up here. And this is as damning as this. And then we have the sin of pride, the most damning of all sins. I thank God. I'm not like her. I'm not like him. Thank you, Jesus. You are like her. You are just like him. Neither of you is okay without what we've come to celebrate right now. How's that go again? Verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But hallelujah, it doesn't end there. I want you to drop down to verse 19. One more line, our last line. We love him because he first loved us. Does your Bible read that way? We love him because he first loved us. There's something deep inside of us that responds to the story of Calvary. And it's called reciprocal love. Reciprocal love. For the maker of all things loves and wants me. And guess what? I love and I want him back. Don't you? When parents say to their kids, and kids shout it back to mom and dad, even as they get older, I love you back, dad. I love you back, mom. When friends say that to each other, one expresses love, and the other quickly, I love you back. It's reciprocal love. And when you come to the foot of this cross that we are at now, that's what gets birthed. I love you back. I love you and want you back. 
by the way, I just learned this this week as I read it in the original language of Greek. Amazing. This loving back kind of love. May I put it on the screen for you this way? We agapao. That means we, the, the, the agapao is the first person singular of to love self-sacrificingly. We agapao love him, God, with self-sacrificing love because he first agapao loved us with self-sacrificing love. It's not enough to know that the maker of all things loves and wants me. That truth goes like this. Take my hand then. You're right. It's nail scarred. I want you to love me back with self-sacrificing love. You may have to sacrifice your career. You may have to sacrifice the major that you were pursuing because the Spirit of God is leaning hard on you to move another way. You may have to sacrifice a relationship that is taking you further down. Every hour it endures. You may have to sacrifice financially money that you have been hoarding, money that you've been saying, well, I'll just use this for myself. Thank you, God, anyway. Self-sacrificing love means just that. You sacrifice yourself. I love you back. How, Dwight? I love you back self-sacrificingly. Show me. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You know the truth. Peter, do you love me? You know my heart. You know everything. Peter, do you love me? Oh, God, I love you and want you back. Okay? One day, you will stretch out your arms and you'll be taken to where you didn't want to go. I'll understand and I'll be with you. Reciprocal love. And so we all bow down. I mean, what else can you do but love him back? Oh, God. All winter long, we've been reminding ourselves the maker of all things loves and wants me. And now through this beautiful moment of communion, we get to love you back. So let this reciprocal love bind us together with each other and with you right now, we pray. Amen. Amen.